This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, this morning, I'm going to be starting a series that's ultimately going to be about going through the book of Revelation. And uh, my intent is to go, it, it's going to be a teaching series uh, more than it is sermons. Uh, but we're going to go through that, and I'm going to take primarily Wednesday nights that are not filled with something else to do this. But on those occasions where I'm here on Sunday morning, then I may or may not do it as well. But this morning, we're going to go over... Um, I have about four introductory lessons that are intended to set the groundwork for this. I think it's important. There's a lot of things you need to understand going into Revelation before you actually start trying to uh, study it if you want it to be a fruitful study. So this morning, our topic is going to be the general topic of why study Bible prophecy at all. And I just wanted to point out a couple of things to you. Did you know that 27% of the Bible is predictive. That means that when written over one-fourth of the Bible, that's one in every four verses, was prophetic. Professor and theologian J. Barton Payne lists 1,817 prophecies in the Bible. Not only is the sheer amount of prophetic material staggering, but it's amazing just how accurate those detailed prophecies are. The study of prophecy in the Bible, it's an entire field for theologians. It's called eschatology. Uh, But it's also one of the the least studied fields because uh, a variety of reasons. And I just want to point out early on that ignoring the study of biblical prophecy means ignoring a very large portion of the Bible. Every fourth verse in Scripture deals with prophecy. The coming of the Lord is so important that it's mentioned 318 times in the 260 chapters of the New Testament. On average, that's one in every 25 verses. Now, the only subject that was mentioned more frequently than the second coming, or that is mentioned more frequently than the second coming of salvation is prophecy. Paul mentioned the communion twice. He mentioned baptism 13 times, but he mentions the return of our Lord 50 times. So what is prophecy? Easton's Bible Dictionary says the following. Prophecy or prediction was one of the functions of the prophet. It has been defined as a miracle of knowledge, a declaration or description or representation of something future beyond the power of human sagacity to foresee, discern, or conjecture. So, from this definition, there's four things I want to point out that are characteristic of prophecy. One, it's limited to a prophet who was selected by God. Two, it is miraculous Because it tells of the future. Three, prophecy comes from God and it is impossible for such knowledge to come from man. And four, all prophecy is given by God to a legitimate prophet and points to Christ in one way or another. So let's look at prophecy in light of its purpose. I have several up here just to give you some examples of things that are considered prophetic. Now if we are to correctly interpret and apply the prophecies of the book of Revelation, we have to study the book in light of the purposes of prophecy as discussed in Scripture. Understanding unfulfilled prophecy necessarily requires that we examine 
fulfilled prophecy. We have to, uh, as one commentator said, look at it this way. He says, a friend took me skeet shooting. Clay pigeons were hurled from two towers, one on the left, one on the right, and every time that pigeon, that clay pigeon, traveled in about the same direction. And the idea was to shoot the pigeon, so what they said was, as you know, you aim where you plan to shoot, then you follow the path back to where it's going to be shot out of the tower, you slightly lead it, and then you shoot. He said, you know, it's not really, it's not as easy as that, you're not going to hit it every time, but you certainly will be closer than you would otherwise. And he said, interpreting biblical prophecy is similar to this. If we would correctly interpret and apply prophecy, which is yet unfulfilled, we first have to discern the course or the path which fulfilled prophecy took historically. Now, if we do this, when we look at the book of Revelation, we're going to have to, as I said, go back into the Old Testament and in some places in the New Testament and look at those prophecies, how they were fulfilled, when they were fulfilled, maybe why they were fulfilled. I believe that's a true statement. And uh, so I'm going to try this morning to talk about the concept of prophecy through the Bible as a whole. But before we do that, why is it that prophecy is so often untaught? I believe that there are five most common reasons for this. One, people don't understand it. Now I'm talking about evangelists, teachers, and church leaders who avoid teaching on this subject. They don't understand it. They may fear offending members of the congregation. They might believe that prophecy will scare people. Uh, they might think in some cases that people will stop tithing if they think the end is tomorrow or is near. Or, most often, they fear, like, fear looking like a fringe lunatic. But here's some reasons why prophecy should be taught. <clears throat> First of all, fulfilled prophecy teaches us that we can trust the Bible. At least one half of all biblical predictions have already been fulfilled precisely as God had declared. The Old Testament prophet would sometimes give a distant prophecy accompanied by a near prophecy. And the purpose of that near prophecy was to authenticate the prophet and his distant prophecy. Because of God's faithfulness in fulfilling these near prophecies, we could be assured that he would fulfill the distant one as well. We know God cannot lie. Numbers 23.19 tells us that. Second reason we should teach prophecy, it is a powerful tool for evangelism. And I know that many people look at this and like, how in the world is prophecy useful for evangelism? Because evangelism is spreading the gospel, right? Well, if we could show that prophecy has been fulfilled, it will naturally lead someone to accept the rest of the Bible as true. And when you accept the rest of the Bible as true, you accept that the second coming of Jesus is a prophecy for which signs were given so that we might gauge the time is short, even if we can't pinpoint the exact day and hour of his return. Third reason we should teach prophecy is it encourages us to work while there is still time. Prophecy helps us take an eternal perspective on life. It should create in us a sense of urgency. Apathy, unfortunately, is a common problem with Christians. It's a human problem. It's not just a Christian problem. And, you know, you have, on the one hand, unbelieving scoffers who they reject the futures of warning you know, warnings of future judgment. They're convinced that everything is carrying on today as it was whenever things were from the very beginning. That's 2 Peter 3, verse 4. But prophecy is given to stir us up. It's given to make us ready for the Lord's return. We are to follow the example of Jesus. 
and loved the world enough to spread the gospel. And never forget that prophecy, or I'm sorry, the gospel includes the prophecy of Christ's future return. Listen to what Paul says about the good news, the gospel. When you remove the element of future fulfillment of prophecy of Christ's second coming. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 through 26. He basically says that we can preach and follow Jesus all we want. But if we don't believe that he is risen in fulfillment of prophecy, then it's all in vain. The Corinthians in this case were doubting that prophecy had been fulfilled. And they were also doubting whether or not resurrection was real in and of itself. God promised us life eternal in his son Jesus Christ. And he prophesied to us how that would come about. He did it for a reason. He could have just been more clear, right? But he didn't do that. And he could have just told us as it happened, but he didn't do that either. He did it to give us hope and to encourage us to work and prepare for the future fulfillment of prophecy. Too often people say the only useful prophecy is a fulfilled prophecy. That is absolutely untrue. Throughout the course of time, God fulfilled many prophecies to add to the hope that we have in the gospel. So they're important to look at. We cannot ignore prophecy. I mean, to do so leaves us in pretty much the same condition as the world, doesn't it? Wanting to believe, perhaps proclaiming to believe, but still not convinced in our hearts. There's a lot of Christians that are that way. They want to believe sincerely, but they're filled with doubt. But that's what prophecy can provide for us, is hope and assurance. Paul says we are not like the world and we should not live blindly as the lost of the world do. Blind in regard to what? The future coming judgment. That's 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 2 through 6. So I'm going to go through and we're going to discuss some features of prophecy. This is what I really want you to pay attention to this morning because this is all going to apply when we get into Revelation, there's going to be a lot of things we go over, and it's all going to be grounded on these first couple of lessons that I give. So first of all, prophecy has been both specific and obscure. Turn to Matt, Micah 5, verse 2. It says, But thou, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. This prophecy here is specific. It is clear. It was written nearly 700 years prior to Jesus' birth. And even the wise, who we can read in the Bible, were confused and confounded. In this case, those Jewish religious uh, leaders, they understood this prophecy. We know that because it tells us so in Matthew 2, verses 1 through 6. But what about this prophecy? Hosea 11, verse 1. Forget what you know about the New Testament for just a minute. And you've had Hosea 11 verse 1 as a Jew in particular, you know, throughout centuries. And this is what it says. When Israel was a child, then I loved him and called my son out of Egypt. Now, when we first look at this verse and you don't know, keep in mind anything about the New Testament. The first thing that jumps out is that the prophet is talking about history, not prophecy, because we know that when the nation of Israel was but a figurative child, God used Moses to rescue them from Egypt. And indeed, this verse is telling the historical facts of that story. But did you also know this was a prophecy at the time it was given? You shouldn't feel bad if you didn't see it or don't know it because no one else apparently did initially either. Turn to Matthew 2, 14 through 15. When he arose, 
Joseph. He took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. That is a direct reference to Hosea 11 verse 1. It wasn't until Jesus came and the events of his life played out for all to see that believers connected the dots. If divinely inspired Matthew hadn't clearly referenced Hosea 11 verse 1 as fulfilled prophecy, I imagine the wise of this age would say, well, you're just committing a logical fallacy. You know, that's fulfillment by convenience for you. You know, that's just a coincidence that that happened. But they would be wrong. This is the way prophecy is. Sometimes it is specific. Sometimes it is obscure. If it's unfulfilled today, you have to remember it may be intentionally obscure. Now there's another thing, type of prophecy it's, or a characteristic, and it's the double fulfillment of prophecies. This is extraordinarily important that you get this. Prophecy sometimes had multiple fulfillments, and there has been so much misunderstanding in prophecy because this concept is not understood. They, one prophecy may reference different or multiple events across time, and they're true on all occasions. We can see this in Isaiah 7 verse 14, for example. The birth of a child here served immediately as a sign for King Ahaz. Isaiah is given the prophecy. But the prophecy also pointed toward the virgin birth of Jesus. Some interpret Jesus' explanation of the signs of the end times as laid out in his own Olivet Discourse as having been fulfilled in some sense in A.D. 70. But they also signal a future, more complete fulfillment during the end times. Another example of a multiple fulfillment prophecy is found in Isaiah 17.1. This one's interesting. There's a lot of talk about this one in, amongst, in prophetic circles. The burden of Damascus says, Behold, Damascus is taken away from being a city, and it shall be a ruinous heap. So the prophet Isaiah was active from about 740 to 701 B.C., and he predicted the destruction of Damascus and Syria. The Assyrian Empire conquered Damascus in 734. And some Bible teachers say, well, that right there was the complete fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. However, when the Assyrians conquered Damascus, they did burn several nearby towns, but they didn't completely destroy Damascus itself. Damascus is even now the oldest continually inhabited city on the planet. And it's never been reduced to complete rubble. Therefore, this prophecy evidently still has a future fulfillment. But Isaiah wasn't the only one to prophesy about Damascus, as it turns out. Jeremiah 49, 24 through 25 says, Damascus is waxed feeble and turneth herself to flee, and fear hath seized on her. Anguish and sorrows have taken her as a woman in travail. How is the praise of city not left? The city of my joy. Now, a hundred years after the Assyrians conquered Damascus, the prophet Jeremiah it gives another prediction about this coming destruction of Damascus. It hadn't happened yet. And here, this is not a separate prophecy. This is something that, in that it's talking about this future complete destruction. It would be, at that time, it could be viewed as the same. But it also had some near fulfillment stuff as well. Jeremiah, as I said, he lived a century after that initial attack. 
And his ministry lasted from the 13th year of King Josiah's reign to about 626 B.C. That was after the, uh, the first prophecy was given. Now, obviously, this prophecy could not apply to the Assyrian conquest of Damascus since it was given much later. Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, he did conquer Damascus in 605 B.C., but he did not destroy the city. So the prophecies about the destruction of Damascus, they do have a partial fulfillment in ancient history. In one sense, they have been fulfilled. The city was attacked. It was overcome. It was under great fear. It was no longer the city of this person's joy. You know, It was a place of war and tumult and slavery. But the utter destruction of Damascus is still future. So this is a double fulfillment prophecy. Now, along similar lines, you have partially fulfilled prophecy. And they are awaiting complete fulfillment. An example of this is found in Jesus' quotation of Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2, in which he declares the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. So if you go to Luke 4 and read verses 18 through 19, you'll see Jesus quoting Isaiah 61, verse 1. He then went on to say when he finished reading verse 1 that he was the fulfillment of this prophecy, but... He stopped reading and he did not read verse 2. Well, why is that? The reason is simple because the first part of the, you know, verse 1, that was actually fulfilled by Christ in his first advent, his first coming. But the second half, concerning the day of vengeance of our God, was not at that time that he was reading it. The day of the Lord is still to be fulfilled in the future. All right, moving on to another characteristic of prophecy is that it may be figuratively or symbolically revealed, but it is most often literally fulfilled. Let me show you an example. So Numbers 21, 6 through 9 is talking about the famous bronze serpent. And the Lord sent, starting in verse 6, and the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and much people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against thee, praying to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten a man when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now in its original context, this is a very confusing thing. It looks like idolatry. And people have used it to undermine the credibility of the Bible very often. They say, well, they came out of Egypt. They're used to worshiping false gods. The serpent would, would be identified potentially as one of those. So what happened is, you know, they worshiped this false idol. They thought they got healed, and, you know, that's what they did. But in reality, and again, let me just point out that the Israelites were indeed so confused by this and by its symbolism, that later on that bronze serpent became an idol for them that was made. We can read about that in 2 Kings 18.14. It had to be destroyed because they were burning incense to it, and they named it, they called it Nehushtan. That's 2 Kings 18, verse 4. You might have thought that that was the end of the bronze serpent story if you were a Jew. Right? It became an idol, it's destroyed. But it turns out it was actually a prophecy that had a figurative and symbolic revealing of an eventual literal fulfillment of prophecy. John 3, 14 through 15. He says, this is Jesus speaking. 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So what did the serpent symbolize? Sin. What did the pole symbolize? The cross. Jesus had to become sin for us to be freed from it. And that's why he said, I have to be lifted up too. So that was all symbolism. And the symbol was of Jesus and the cross. But it was only partially fulfilled. What was the partial part? Well, God told Moses ahead of time, if you put this serpent up, the people who were bitten by snakes will be healed. They believed in him. The prophecy was pretty much immediately fulfilled. Partial fulfillment. Later on, it was fully fulfilled in Calvary. Now, there are other examples of this kind of thing as well. Christ was symbolically revealed as the Passover lamb in ritual sacrifice, and he literally fulfilled it on the cross. Isaiah 53 goes into great symbolic detail of the atoning work of the Messiah, and these prophetic pictures were every single one literally fulfilled in the life of Christ. Isaiah 7 contains a prophecy that was revealed symbolically, but fulfilled literally in the virgin birth of Christ. So we see prophecy can indeed be revealed symbolically. But we can expect a literal fulfillment according to the history of prophecy that's been fulfilled in the Bible. Another thing is that God reveals prophecy partially and progressively. Now by that I mean, let me just illustrate it this way. One reason why the prophets of old could not understand the promises of God contained in their own writings is that the plan was only partly revealed and prophecy is at best partial. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 9 through 12. Now our knowledge is partial and incomplete, and even the gift of prophecy reveals only part of the whole picture. But when the time of perfection comes, these partial things will become useless. When I was a child, I spake and thought and reasoned as a child, but when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely, just as God knows me completely. The revelations that the prophets received and communicated to us was partial. The prophecies pertaining to our Lord's second coming are also partial, according to Paul here. What we've been given are like pieces of a puzzle. There, there are enough for us to get a general picture about what lies ahead, but not enough to reveal the entire picture sometimes. As a matter of fact, prophecy was never written to tell us history in advance. One theologian put it like this, prophecy is very different from history. It's not intended to give knowledge of the future in the same way that history gives knowledge of the past. Future events are predicted to give faith that they will certainly come to pass. Enough is made known about their nature, how and when they will occur, to get our attention, to make us desire to know more, and even cause apprehension sometimes. Prophecy makes a general impression about future events that is reliable, but the details may remain obscure. So understand, the primary reason prophecy is given is to underscore the certainty of future events, not to give you every tiny detail about the event itself. Another thing that you may hear is that a lot of prophecy is no longer relevant 
It's just like a historical footnote. That is simply not true. While it's true that prophecy has a particular benefit to those who study it in light of its fulfillment, prophecy is profitable for all. It's a necessary conclusion from Paul's words to Timothy and to the Romans. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So if you leave out that one quarter of the Bible that's prophet, prophecy, I take from this verse that you cannot be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Romans 15, 4, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through patience and comfort of scriptures, might have hope. And then Peter says in 2 Peter 3, 11 through 12, he, he basically says, seeing then that prophecy tells us the entire world's going to be consumed in fire and the elements will melt, what kind of life should we be living? What kind of outlook and perspective should we have? Prophecy is much more than the mere telling of future. The prophet's role was to incite his, his, his uh, listeners to godly living. Prophecy reminds us God is sovereign over all history and he keeps his promises. And if you study prophecy, you will be encouraged to live a pure and righteous life and suffering and sacrifice in this life are going to make more sense to you. Because you will see proof that God not only kept all his past promises, but you will see the promises he's made about the future and you can take hope that he said, I see all these things and I have a plan for them. <clears throat> Revelation 1.3 Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. You know, the pro prophecy, the way it is in the Bible, it makes it uh, unique from other religious texts. For example, there is absolutely no emphasis on predictive prophecy in the Quran or the Hindu Vedas. The Bible, however repeatedly points to fulfilled prophecy as direct proof that it is God who speaks. Since God is omniscient or all-knowing, we shouldn't be surprised to see so many prophecies fulfilled, for he says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. That's Isaiah 46. 9 through 10. Apparently, God thinks that we should care about prophecy because he says, I specifically give it to show you that I am above your way of thinking. I can do things you cannot do. Another interesting feature of prophecy is that it's always been fulfilled in unexpected ways. Let's allow the Apostle Peter to make the case on this point. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12 says, This salvation was something... Even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and his great glory afterward. They were told that their messages were not for themselves, but for you. And now this good news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. I must confess, typically throughout my life, I've had very little interest in prophecy. I was challenged in prayer after prayer and study 
to actually push myself to do something that I had not initially wanted to do or didn't particularly have strong feelings about, and that was a study of prophecy. And one of the things that strikes me about this verse is it says prophecy is so interesting that even the angels are anxiously and eagerly watching for these things to happen. But notice, this says that the prophets themselves did not understand their own prophecies. Regarding the coming of the Messiah, they were struggling to understand how he would, have to, he would be killed, but he would also reign in glory. They seemed contradictory. And they weren't the only ones that were confused. The nation of Israel was confused. Only Simeon and Anna re realized that prophecy was being fulfilled before their very eyes in Luke chapter 2. The chief priests and scribes, they knew that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, but they were so confused they conspired to murder him. Even Mary, the Lord's mother, puzzled over what she had seen and been told according to Luke 1.29. The disciples, they didn't understand much of the events in Jesus' life or his teachings until after they had taken place and the Holy Spirit revealed it to them. You see, prophecy will not always make sense or match our expectations, our human expectations. In light of these things, one scholar asked, why is it then that Christians today expect that prophecy can be neatly outlined, charted, mapped, and laid out in such a way that we can say with certainty just how the last days will end? No one, not even the prophets who, regarded their, who recorded their prophecies, were able to package the Old Testament prophecies in a way that enabled them to comprehend and communicate every detail about how God's promises would come to pass. The reality is this, the divine prophecy is always going to be a little bit puzzling until after its fulfillment. Only then will we see it all marvelously, literally, and meticulously fulfilled. And when that happens, not one of us is going to be able to stand there and say, just as I predicted, it's not going to happen. There's a problem with man's view of prophecy in my view in general it's that it does not meet the reader's expectation but I want to emphasize this is the reader's problem not the author's problem to illustrate this problem I want to share with you a quote used by B.W. Johnson in his 1881 book A Vision of the Ages the quote given says there is a great need of a clear apprehension of the natural simple rational self-consistent principles for the interpretation of scripture prophecy now in one respect, I agree with that statement. For we read in 1 Corinthians 14.33, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. And even as I say these words about what I've said to this point, there are people that will hear the message getting their hackles up, and they're thinking about this verse. Of course we can know everything. Or my way can't be wrong. Because God is not the author of confusion. So I want to look at this verse just a, just a little bit here. As I've said, some prophecy is direct and clear. Others are purposely not clear. As we read Peter, we see that good, spiritual, God-filled men and women can and will labor over prophecy. And that is good. And that is fine. But when it comes to either unfulfilled prophecy, partially fulfilled prophecy, double or multiple fulfillment prophecy, then we must be very careful that we do not close the book and say that we've taken all the lessons on that particular prophecy that we care to. But that is exactly what happens. 
The word rendered confusion in 1 Corinthians 14.33 means instability and disorder in the original Greek. And peace is stated by Strong's to probably be from the primary verb arrow, which means to join. And the word peace, as it's used in 1 Corinthians 14.33, means peace both literally and figuratively and by implication prosperity. So here's what I take from that. This is the prosperity, what this is talking about, this peace, this is the prosperity, the usefulness that comes from two or more things coming together and working as one in peace without clamor. To better illustrate this, imagine a car engine with pistons and moving parts, which when they're lubricated properly, properly, they work together without friction and they're quiet. But if you remove the lubrication or the oil, the engine begins to run roughly, makes noise, it heats up. And that noise and vibration comes from friction. That friction is what creates the heat. Parts are grinding against one another where they're not supposed to. They're getting hot. And as a result, you have a noisy rough ride which is putting out less power and it eventually breaks down altogether. Now with regard to understanding the Bible, the church, prophecy, just like these pistons, we need oil. And the Bible speaks about our need for oil. Turn to 1 Corinthians 2.14. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. It's not about our logic. It's about our oil. For they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them. Because they are spiritually discerned. John 14.26. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. The Bible repeatedly talks about being anointed by the Holy Spirit. But we don't like to use the word anointed. Why? It's pretty petty. We don't want to be seen as Pentecostals. So let's just ignore the teaching of anointing altogether. And as a result, not acknowledge where our teaching truly comes from. That's foolishness. We're not Pentecostals, but we are believers in the Bible. And the Holy Spirit is that oil to our spiritual understanding. And we must have it. Now, in the interest of time, I'm not going to give a lesson on that. (laughs) That is a whole lesson unto itself. But 1 John 2.27 says, But the anointing which ye have received of him, the Holy Spirit, abides in you. And ye need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teacheth you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Consider what is being said here. If you want true teaching, it has to come from the Holy Spirit. And if all you ever did was to fail to pray for the teaching of the Holy Spirit in your life, and you just listened to men, you might be led astray. You see, the Holy Spirit anoints us in spiritual teaching and understanding symbolized by oil. That oil allows us to proceed together prosperously in peace and understanding. As it relates to prophecy, my point is that we cannot expect to be able to discern meaning, importance, or application apart from the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to go back real quick to 1 Corinthians 14.33. Look at it just a little bit further in its context. What Paul is teaching about here is, you know, you had people who were desiring to have spiritual gifts, specifically speaking in tongues, languages that were not their own. And that wasn't the problem. He said that's a good thing. 
but it is why they desired them that was the problem. These Christians wanted to show off something special about themselves. They were taken by the idea that they could be seen speaking in other tongues. You know, a lingering problem with the study of prophecy is a desire to be right by so many teachers. Now this problem leads teachers to draw conclusions which are oftentimes merely best guesses and they desire to conform the word of God to their own logic or way of thinking. And that's met, led many to teach their view of prophecy as absolute. And worse yet, they ridicule the views of other people. This in turn has led to divisions, confusion, and in general, a reticence toward teaching prophecy at all. When we look again at 1 Corinthians 14.33, where we're told that God is not the author of confusion, in context, what this verse is saying is that God is not the author of confusion, but peace. That doesn't say anything about perfect understanding of all things. Peace through love. You look at the entire book as a whole. This verse is used by some, perhaps well-meaning, to claim that they are justified in attacking, ridiculing, ignoring, slandering, or shunning somebody who holds a different prophetic view than their own. It's been used as a cudgel, where somebody just beats somebody else over the head with, when their opinions don't precisely match them. They say, I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to respect you. You're a crazy kook. I'm the one that's right. You're wrong. My way makes sense. Yours doesn't. You go back to that original quote. There is a greater need for the natural, simple, rational, self-consistent principles in the interpretation of prophecy. All that quote is saying, if it doesn't make sense to me, a learned man, then it can't be right. But I'm hoping that as we go through this, you'll begin to see that prophecy transcends man. It is from God, whose ways are higher than our ways. Now, I want to clarify something. This is very important. When it comes to doctrine, there is no room for disparity, error, or equivocation on the subject. Some things are clear-cut and decidedly simple because God has made them. So, for example, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except by and through Him. In this case, there is no need or room for negotiation. It is a matter of clear doctrine, easily proven in Scripture, and to change even the slightest bit, even one word, constitutes false teaching. God does not seek to confuse men's minds about the gospel. He seeks to save them with the gospel, to illuminate them. But what about another verse earlier in that same chapter? 1 Corinthians 1, 27. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. Hold on a minute. I thought we just got through saying God is not the author of confusion. Well, He's not, but He uses it. In this particular case, we're told that God is actively using something to confuse the wise. Well, who are the wise God is confusing? referencing Jewish leaders and people who ended up going against, you know, creating false doctrines against the, the, the scriptures they had it. Ultimately, though, here's who those wise men were. They are those who take pride in being right. That they enjoy the power that comes with asserting being right upon others. And they are those who want to be right 
because it brings them great respect. These are the wives that God has said to confuse. Now Paul has asked the Christians in Corinth here to take a good look at the people in their congregation. Their brothers and sisters in Christ. And in the previous verse he wrote, very few of you are wise or powerful in human terms. Most of them were not born into nobility. His point's not that he's trying to put them down, but to emphasize that God does not require brilliance or power to become a believer. In fact, many people who rely on their intellect or wealth, they do so so much that it keeps them from trusting in God. Matthew 19, 23, Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. What Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians is he's continuing to reveal why so many refuse to believe in the crucified Christ. They think that any God who could or would die on the cross to save people would be foolish and weak. And by extension, anybody who'd believe in such a foolish and weak God is foolish and weak themselves. That's what the world believed about the church. And the term used for foolishness here is the same one behind the English word moron. Paul's con- what, what he's doing is he's not saying that the believers in Corinth are actually weak or foolish. But the world sees them as that way. And the reason why they said that was because the truth that the Holy Spirit was teaching them, anointing them with, didn't match the logical expectations of the human mind. It made no sense. It didn't seem possible. And so Paul was warning against that. God is not the author of confusion, but he does use the confused state of men to combat the pride that is in our hearts. And when it specifically comes to the study of prophecy, my admonition to you, and I'm taking this to heart myself, be very, very careful that pride does not creep up in your heart, that you refuse the study because you have to be right, because you assume that you have the culmination of all knowledge when even the people who wrote the prophecies themselves. The Bible tells us they didn't understand it all. I would encourage everybody to approach the study with an open mind because my approach will be I'm going to show you a variety of views. Uh, I've done quite a bit of research and I'm going to share with you what beliefs are there, why they're there. And I'm going to avoid a whole lot of telling you this is the way it is Because while I certainly have my opinions on that, I also am humble enough to know I don't have all the answers, and neither do you. So this study, try your best. It might sometimes be hard when you hear some of the foolishness I present to you that some people believe. Some of it does seem pretty silly. And some of it we can identify as false teaching. But then there's a lot of it that we cannot. And you'll see what I mean as we get into that. But don't try to use Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians to say that there's no such thing as confusion that's used in God's plan. Oh, there is too. And this brings me to a main point. God is not the author of confusion, but he uses man's confused state to bring about his divine glory using certain elements of scripture that are mysterious. Did you know that the Bible has mystery in it? The Bible specifically calls it mystery. Prophecy is measured by doctrine against Scripture, but it is not doctrine itself in many cases. As a result, there are going to be 
differences in opinion on prophetic material, and it is not disorderly or or creating confusion for it to be so. The fact is, we don't all have to agree on certain matters of prophecy. Because what, you know, we can't know all there is to know about it, and there is no one teacher among us who knows all the answers. I know we might wish that there was, but there's not, and it's by God's design. Strong cases can be built for various views as it relates to unfulfilled prophecy. But that does not mean that they're entirely right or entirely wrong. We have to accept that if we're going to take an honest and earnest study of prophecy because this is really the main reason nobody teaches on Revelation. Because you have to know when you come up here, you're about to talk to people about things that they have very strong opinions on. And you may walk away from here, as I remember a boy, I remember there, I can't remember his name, there was a preacher, came and held a gospel meeting, was all in Revelation. I remember my parents talking about it afterwards, like, man, he sure does have some crazy views. I don't know about those things. And did they get anything out of that study? I don't think so. The reasons for that could be There could be many reasons for that, but I don't want that to happen during this study. So I'm going to take a very thorough approach, and I just hope that you will be prepared to study and learn. Draw your conclusions based on the proddings of the Holy Spirit within your life, and most importantly, what we can see in Scripture. Jesus used mystery to cloak the truth. He told us that's why he used parables. Paul says that the mystery of the gospel was previously something that had been purposely hidden. And it was only revealed after Jesus' death and re- burial and resurrection. And Revelation 10.7 says, There is still mystery that hasn't been clarified. But in the day of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, then the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. There's stuff we don't know. It's still cloaked in mystery. And yet... We're not told to ignore it because of that. We're told, no, earnestly study it. Get interested in it. See what it has to say, because if you do, you will trust God more, you'll be excited, you'll be filled with hope, and it's very interesting. This is probably one of the most boring lessons I hope to give during this presentation. Um, So, as we conclude, uh, I just want to, uh, to encourage you to... Try to be here on the Wednesdays and such where, where we're doing this because sometimes it can be difficult to, to follow if you miss portions of it because it's all tied together. And I want to just say this. Remember that the book of Revelation is not about Satan. It's not about the Antichrist. It's not about the tribulation period. It's not even about judgment. All those things are in the book. They're topics. But what Revelation is about is Jesus Christ what the whole Bible's about. And so if you approach this study trying to understand how does this bring glory to God and point to Christ, you will come away with a fruitful study. Remember, it's about Jesus. The culmination of God's great plan for the world, which is still somewhat shrouded in mystery in all the details. Now if you haven't accepted Jesus, prophecy spoken by our Lord and Savior tells us that he can come at any day. All the signs and wonders are there to proclaim who He is and that the gospel is true. Why do you wait? And if you've already accepted Christ, but you're hindered with a load of care and 
if you don't feel that you're a workman approved unto the Lord, uh, that is one of the things that the church is here for, to pray for you. And, you know, how many remember that we are commanded to confess our faults one to another? Sometimes the best medicine for a struggling Christian is to bring it before brothers and sisters who love him or her and don't judge them for it, to understand we're all struggling in the same and yet different ways, and sometimes we just need to pray for one another. I know oftentimes I've needed that in the past, but embarrassment prevents me from going up front. Don't want to be seen as weak, but we are all weak. So if there is anybody in the audience today who needs the prayers of the church or is ready to be baptized, uh, don't be embarrassed. Come forward and take advantage of what has been set up for us as we stand and sing the invitation song. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479-647-2658. May God bless you.